Section five of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section five. The General's Bluff. Part one. The troops this day had gone into winter quarters and sat down to kill the idle time with pleasure until spring. After two hundred and forty days it is a good thing to sit down. The season had been spent in trailing and sometimes catching small bands of Indians. These had taken the habit of relieving settlers of their cattle and the tops of their heads. The weather-beaten troops had scouted over some two thousand aimless, veering miles, for the savages were fleet and mostly invisible, and knew the desert well. So while the year turned and the heat came, held sway, and went, the ragged troopers on the frontier were led an endless chase by the hostiles, who took them back and forth over flats of lime and ridges of slate occasionally picking off a packer or a couple of privates, until now the sun was setting at 4.28, and it froze at any time of day. Therefore the rest of the packers and privates were glad to march into Boise Barracks this morning by eleven and see a stove. They rolled for a moment on their bunks to get the feel of a bunk again after two hundred and forty days. They ate their dinner at a table those who owned any further baggage than that which partially covered their nakedness unpacked it perhaps nailed up a photograph or two and found it grateful to sit and do nothing under a roof and listen to the grated snow whip the windows of the gray sandstone quarters such comfort and the prospect of more ahead of weeks of nothing but post duty and staying in the same place obliterated dry camp cow creek lake the blizzard on meacham's hill the horse killing in the john day valley sawtooth stampede and all the recent evils of the past the quarters hummed with cheerfulness the nearest railroad was some four hundred miles to the southeast slowly constructing to meet the next nearest which was some nine hundred to the southeast but Boise City was only three-quarters of a mile away, the largest town in the territory, the capital, not a temperance town, a winter resort. And several hundred people lived in it, men and women, few of whom ever died in their beds. The coming days and nights were a luxury to think of. "'Blamed if there ain't a real tree!' exclaimed Private Jones. "'That ere ain't no tree, you plum. That's a flagpole and American flag, observed a civilian. His name was Jack Long, and he was packmaster. Sergeant Kaiser, listening, smiled. During the winter of sixty four sixty five, he had been in command of the first battalion of his regiment, but on a theory of education had enlisted after the war. This being known, held the men more shy of him than was his desire. Jones continued to pick his banjo, while a boyish trooper with tough black hair sat near him and kept time with his heels. "'It's a cottonwood tree I was speaking of,' observed Jones. There was one, a little shivering white stalk. 
It stood above the flat where the barracks were, on a bench twenty or thirty feet higher, on which were built the officers' quarters. The air was getting dim with the fine hard snow that slanted through it. The thermometer was ten above out there. At the mere sight and thought Mr. Long produced a flat bottle, warm from proximity to his flesh. Jones swallowed some drink and looked at the little tree. "'Snakes, but it feels good,' said he, "'to get something inside ya and be inside yourself. What's the tax at Mike's dance-house now?' "'Dance and drinks for two, for one dollar,' responded Mr. Long, accurately. He was sixty, but that made no difference. "'You and me'll take that in, Jock,' said Jones to his friend, the black-haired boy. "'Sigh no more, ladies,' he continued singing. "'The blamed banjo won't accompany that,' he remarked, and looked out again at the tree. "'There's a chap riding into the post now. Shabby-looking. Maybe he's got stuff to sell.' Jack Long looked up on the bench at a rusty figure moving slowly through the storm. "'The old man,' he said. "'He ain't specially old,' Jones answered. "'They're apt to be older, them peddlers.' peddlers oh yes a seizure of very remarkable coughing took jack long by the throat but he really had a cough and on the fits leaving him swallowed a drink and offered his bottle in a manner so cold and usual that jones forgot to note anything but the excellence of the whiskey mr long winked at sergeant kaiser he thought it a good plan not to inform his young friends not just yet at any rate that their peddler was General Crook. It would be pleasant to hear what else they might have to say. The General had reached Boise City that morning by the stage, quietly and unknown as was his way. He had come to hunt Indians in the district of the Owyhee. Jack Long had discovered this, but only a few had been told the news for the general wished to ask questions and receive answers, and to find out about all things, and he had noticed that this is not easy when too many people know who you are. He had called upon a friend or two in Boise, walked about unnoticed, learned a number of facts, and now, true to his habit, entered the post wearing no uniform none being necessary under the circumstances, and unattended by a single orderly. Jones and the black-haired Cumner hoped he was a peddler, and innocently sat looking out of the window at him riding along the bench in front of the quarters, and occasionally slouching his wide, dark hat-brim against the stinging of the hard flakes. Jack Long, old and much experienced with the army, had scouted with Crook before, and knew him and his ways well. He also looked out of the window, standing behind Jones and Cumnor, with a huge hairy hand on a shoulder of each, and a huge wink again at Kaiser. "'Blamed if he ain't stoppin' in front of the commanding officers,' said Jones. "'Lor,' said Mr. Long, "'there's just nothin' them peddlers won't do.' "'They ain't likely to buy anything off him in there,' said Cumnor. "'Well, if he's provided with any kind of engine curiosities, the missus she'll fly right on to him. She ain't been married out here only half a year, and she spies feathers and bead truck and buckskin for sale. She hollers like a son of a gun. 
enthusiastic, you know. He ain't got much of a pack, Jones commented, and at that moment stables sounded, and the men ran to form and march to their grooming. Jack Long stood at the door and watched them file through the snow. Very few enlisted men of the small command that had come in this morning from its campaign had ever seen General Crooks. Jones, though not new to the frontier, had not been long in the army. He and Cumner had enlisted in a happy-go-lucky manner together at Grant in Arizona when the general was elsewhere. Discipline was galling to his vagrant spirit, and after each payday he had generally slept off the effects in the guardhouse, going there for other offenses between whiles. But he was not of the stuff that deserts. Also, he was excellent-tempered, and his captain liked him for the way in which he could shoot Indians. Jack Long liked him, too, and getting always a harmless pleasure from the mistakes of his friends, sincerely trusted there might be more about the peddler. He was startled at hearing his name spoken in his ear. "'Nah, Johnny, how you get on?' "'Hello, Sarah. Clay how ya said Long, greeting in Chinook the squaw interpreter, who had approached him so noiselessly. Hyasklush okokulum. It is a beautiful day. The interpreter laughed. She had a broad, sweet, coarse face, and laughed easily, and said in English, You hear about Iiante? Long had heard nothing recently of this Paiute chieftain. He heap bad, continued Sarah, laughing broadly. Come round ranch up here. Anybody killed? Long interrupted. Now, all run away quick. Meester Daly, he old man, he run all same young one. His old woman, she run all same man. Get horse. Run away quick, ho, ho. And Sarah's rich mockery sounded again. No tragedy had happened this time, and the squaw narrated her story greatly to the relish of Mr. Long. This veteran of trails and mines had seen too much of life's bleakness not to cherish whatever of mirth his days might bring. "'Didn't burn the house?' he said. "'Not burn. Just make heap mess. Cut up feather bed, hyas-titin ass, very small, and eat big dinner, hoo-hoo. Sugar, onions, meat, eat all. Then they find lit cats walkin' round there.' Lord, said Mr. Long, deeply interested, they didn't eat them. No, not eat lit cats. Put em too, man-cat and woman-cat, in molasses. Put em in feather-bed, all same bird. Then they hunt for whiskey, break everything, hunt all over halo whiskey. Sarah shook her head. Meester Daly, he good man. Hi, you temperance. Drink water. They find his medicine, drink all up make awful sick. I guess twar the old man's liniment, muttered Jack Long. Yes, milliment. They can't walk. Stay there long time. Then Meester Daly come back with friends. They think Injun's all gone. Make noise, and Iigante, he hear him come, and he not very sick. Run away. Some more run. But two Injuns heap sick. Can't run. Meester Daly, he come round the corner, see awful mess everywhere, see two lit cats sittin' in door, all same bird, sing very loud. Then he see two engines on ground. 
They dead now. Well, said Long, no year do. We'll have to catch Iigante. Ah, drawled Sarah the squaw in musical derision. Maybe no catch him, all same jackrabbit. Jest ye wait, Sarah. Gray Fox has come. General Cook, said the squaw, he come? Oh, he heap savvy. She stopped and laughed again like a pleased child. Maybe no catchy, Igante, she added, rolling her pretty brown eyes at Jack Long. You know, Igante, he demanded. Yes, one time, long time now. I lit girl then. But Sarah remembered that long time, when she slept in a tent and had not been captured and put to school. And she remembered the tall young boys whom she used to watch shoot arrows, and the tallest, who shot most truly. At least he certainly did now, in her imagination. He had never spoken to her or looked at her. He was a boy of fourteen and she a girl of eight. Now she was twenty-five. Also she was tame and domesticated, with a white husband who was not bad to her, and children for each year of wedlock, who would grow up to speak English better than she could, and her own tongue not at all. And Iigante was not tame, and still lived in a tent. Sarah regarded white people as her friends, but she was proud of being an Indian, and she liked to think that her race could outwit the soldier now and then. She laughed again when she thought of old Mrs. Daly running from Iigante. "'What's up with you, Sarah?' said Jack Long, for the squaw's laughter had come suddenly on a spell of silence. "'Yeast!' said she. "'All same jackrabbit. No catch him!' She stood shaking her head at Long and showing her white regular teeth. Then abruptly she went away to her tent without any word, not because she was in ill-humor or had thought of something, but because she was an Indian and had thought of nothing and had no more to say. She met the men returning from the stables, admired Jones and smiled at him, upon which he murmured, Oh, fie, as he passed her. The troop broke ranks and dispersed, to lounge and gossip until mess-call. Cumnor and Jones were putting a little snow down each other's necks with friendly profanity, when Jones saw the peddler standing close and watching them. A high collar of some ragged fur was turned up round his neck, disguising the character of the ancient army overcoat to which it was attached, and spots and long stains extended down the legs of his corduroys to the charred holes at the bottom, where the owner had scorched them warming his heels and calves at many campfires. "'Hello, Uncle,' said Jones. "'What you got in your pack?' He and Cumnor left their gambles and eagerly approached, while Mr. Jack Long, seeing the interview, came up also to hear it. "'Ain't you got something to sell?' continued Jones. "'You haven't gone and dumped your whole outfit at the commanding officers, have you now?' "'I'm afraid I have.' The low voice shook ever so little, and if Jones had looked he would have seen a twinkle come and go in the grey-blue eyes. We've been out eight months, you know, fairly steady, pursued Jones, and haven't seen nothing. And we'd buy almost anything that ain't too damn bad, he concluded plaintively. 
Mr. Long, in the background, was whining to himself with joy, and he now urgently beckoned Kaiser to come and hear this. "'If you've got some cheap poker chips,' suggested Cumnor. "'And say, Uncle,' said Jones, raising his voice, for the peddler was moving away, "'decks and tobacco better than what they keep at the commissary. Me and my friends'll take some off your hands. And if you're coming with new stock to-morrow, Uncle,' Jones was now shouting after him, "'why, we're single men, and you might fetch along a couple of squaws.' "'Holy smoke!' screeched Mr. Long, dancing on one leg. "'What's up with you, ya ape?' inquired Specimen Jones. He looked at the departing peddler and saw Sergeant Kaiser meet him and salute with stern, soldierly aspect. Then the peddler shook hands with the sergeant, seemed to speak pleasantly, and again Kaiser saluted as he passed on. "'What's that for?' Jones asked uneasily. Who is that hobo? But Mr. Long was talking to himself in a highly moralizing strain. It ain't every young enlisted man, he was saying, as has the privilege of explaining his wants at headquarters. Jones, said Sergeant Kaiser, arriving, I've a compliment for you. General Crook said you were a fine-looking man. General? What's that? Where'd you, you see, what, what, him? The disgusting truth flashed clear on Jones. Uttering a single disconcerted syllable of rage, he wheeled and went by himself into the barracks, and lay down solitary on his bunk, and read a newspaper until mess call without taking in a word of it. If they go to put me in the mill for that, he said sulkily, to many friends who brought him their congratulations. I'm going to give them what I think about wearing disguises. What do you think, Specimen? said one. Give it to us now, Specimen, said another. Against the law, ain't it, Specimen? Begosh, said Jack Long. If that's so, don't lose no time warning the general, Specimen. The old man'd hate to be arrested. And Specimen Jones told them all to shut their heads. But no thought was more distant from General Crook's busy mind than putting poor Jones in the guardhouse. The trooper's willingness, after eight months hunting Indians, to buy almost anything brought a smile to his lips and a certain sympathy in his heart. He knew what those eight months had been like, how monotonous, how well endured, how often dangerous, how invariably plucky how scant of even the necessities of life, how barren of glory and unrewarded by public recognition. The American statesman does not care about our army until it becomes necessary for his immediate personal protection. General Crook knew all this well, and realizing that these soldiers, who had come into winter quarters this morning at eleven, had earned a holiday, he was sorry to feel obliged to start them out again to-morrow morning at two, for this was what he had decided upon. He had received orders to drive on the reservation the various small bands of Indians that were roving through the country of the Snake and its tributaries, a danger to the miners in the Bannock Basin, and to the various ranches in West Idaho and East Oregon. As usual, he had been given an insufficient force to accomplish this, 
and as always he had been instructed by the statesman to do it without violence that is to say he must never shoot the poor indian until after the poor indian had shot him he must make him do something he did not want to pleasantly by the fascination of argument in the way a statesman would achieve it the force at the general's disposal was the garrison at boise barracks one troop of cavalry and one company of infantry the latter was not adapted to the matter at hand rapid marching and surprises all it could be used for was as reinforcement and moreover somebody must be left at boise barracks the cavalry had had its full dose of scouting and skirmishing and long exposed marches the horses were poor and nobody had any trousers to speak of also the troop was greatly depleted it numbered forty men forty had deserted and three a sergeant and three privates had cooked and eaten a vegetable they had been glad to dig up one day and had spent the ensuing forty-five minutes in attempting to make their ankles beat the backs of their heads after that the captain had read over them a sentence beginning man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery and after that the camp was referred to as wild carrot camp because the sergeant had said the vegetable was wild carrot whereas it had really been wild parsnip which is quite another thing general crook shook his head over what he saw the men were ill provided the commissary and the quartermaster department were ill provided but it would have to do the statesman said our army was an extravagance the indians must be impressed and intimidated by the unlimited resources which the general had not having come to this conclusion he went up to the post commanders and at supper astonished that officer by casual remarks which revealed a knowledge of the surrounding country the small streams the best camps for pasture spots to avoid on account of bad water what mules had sore backs and many other things that the post commander would have liked dearly to ask the general where and when he had learned only he did not dare he did not even venture to ask him what he was going to do neither did captain glenn who had been asked to meet the general the general soon told them however it may be a little cold he concluded to-morrow sir this from captain glenn he had come in with the forty that morning he had been enjoying his supper very much i think so said the general this egante is likely to make trouble if he is not checked then understanding the thoughts of captain glenn he added with an invisible smile you need no preparations you're in marching order it's not as if your men had been here a long time and had to get ready for a start oh no said glenn it isn't like that he was silent i think if you'll excuse me general he said next i'll see my sergeant and give some orders certainly and captain glenn i took the liberty of giving a few directions myself we'll take an a tent you know for you and me i see kaiser is sergeant in f troop glad we have a non-commissioned officer so competent haven't seen him since sixty four at winchester 
Why, it's cleared off, I declare." It had, and the general looked out of the open doors as Captain Glenn, departing, was pulling at his cigar. "How beautiful the planets are!" exclaimed Crook. "Look at Jupiter, there, just to the left of that little cottonwood tree. Haven't you often noticed how much finer the stars shine in this atmosphere than in the east? Oh, Captain, I forgot to speak of extra horseshoes. I want some brought along. I'll attend to it, General. They shouldn't be too large. These California fourteen-and-a-half horses have smallish hoofs. I'll see the blacksmith myself, General. Thank you. Good night. And just order fresh stuffing put into the aparejos. I noticed three that had got lumpy. And the general shut the door and went to wipe out the immaculate barrels of his shotgun for besides Indians there were grouse among the hills where he expected to go. Captain Glenn, arriving at his own door, stuck his glowing cigar against the thermometer hanging outside, twenty-three below zero. "'Oh, Lord!' said the captain, briefly. He went in and told his striker to get Sergeant Kaiser. Then he sat down and waited. "'Look at Jupiter!' he muttered angrily. What an awful old man! It was rather awful. The captain had not supposed generals in the first two hours of their arrival at a post to be in the habit of finding out more about your aparejos than you knew yourself. But old the general was not. At the present day many captains are older than Crook was then. Down at the barracks there was the same curiosity about what the old man was going to do as existed at the post commander's during the early part of supper. It pleased the cavalry to tell the infantry that the old man proposed to take the infantry to the Columbia River next week, and the infantry replied to the cavalry that they were quite right as to the river and the week, and it was hard luck the general needed only mounted troops on this trip others had heard he had come to superintend the building of a line of telegraph to Klamath, which would be a good winter's job for somebody, but nobody supposed that anything would happen yet a while. And then a man came in and told them the general had sent his boots to the saddler to have nails hammered in the soles. "'That ear means business,' said Jack Long, "'and I guess I'll nail up me own cowhides.' "'Jock!' said Specimen Jones to Cumner. You and me ain't got any soles to iron, cause they're contract boots, you see. I'll nail up your feet if you say so. It's liable to be slippery. Cumner did not take in the situation at once. What's your hurry? he inquired of Jack Long. Therefore it was explained to him that when General Crook ordered his boots fixed, you might expect to be on the road shortly. Cumner swore some resigned, unemphatic oaths, fondly supposing that shortly meant some time or other, but hearing in the next five minutes the definite fact that F Troop would get up at two, he made use of profound and thorough language, and compared the soldier with the slave. "'Why, you talk almost like a man, Jock,' said Specimen Jones. "'Blamed if you don't sound pretty near growed up.' Cumner invited Jones to mind his business. 
Your mustaches has come since Arizona, continued Jones admiringly, and your blue eye is bad looking, worse than when we shot at your heels and ya danced for us. I thought they were going to give us a rest, mumbled the youth, flushing. I thought we'd be let stay here a spell. I thought so too, Jock. A little monotony would be fine variety. But a man must take his medicine, you know, and not squeal. Jones had lowered his voice, and now spoke without satire to the boy, whom he had in a curious manner taken under his protection. "'Look at what they give us for a blanket to sleep in,' said Cumnor. "'A fellow can see to read the newspaper through it.' "'Look at my coat, Cumnor.' It was Sergeant Kaiser showing the article furnished the soldier by the government. "'You can spit through that.' He had overheard their talk and stepped up to show that all were in the same box. At his presence reticence fell upon the privates, and Cumnor hauled his black felt hat down tight in embarrassment, which strain split it open halfway round his head. It was another sample of regulation clothing, and they laughed at it. "'We all know the way it is,' said Kaiser, "'and I've seen it a big sight worse.' Cumnor, I've a cap I guess will keep your scalp warm till we get back. And so, at two in the morning, F Troop left the bunks it had expected to sleep in for some undisturbed weeks, and by four o'clock had eaten its well-known breakfast of bacon and bad coffee, and was following the awful old man down the north bank of the Boise, leaving the silent, dead, wooden town of shanties on the other side half a mile behind in the darkness. The mountain south stood distant, ignoble, plain-featured heights, looming a clean-cut black beneath the piercing stars, and the slice of hard, sharp-edged moon, and the surrounding plains of sage and dry-cracking weed slanted up and down to nowhere and nothing with desolate perpetuity. The snowfall was light and dry as sand, and the bare ground jutted through it at every sudden lump or knoll. The column moved through the dead polar silence, scarcely breaking it. Now and then a hoof rang on a stone, here and there a bridle or a sabre clinked lightly, but it was too cold and early for talking and the only steady sound was the flat, can-like tankle of the square bell that hung on the neck of the long-eared leader of the pack-train. They passed the daily ranch, and saw the kittens and the liniment bottle, but could get no information as to what way Igante had gone. The general did not care for that, however. He had devised his own route for the present, after a talk with the Indian guides. At the second dismounting, during the march, he had word sent back to the pack-train not to fall behind, and the bell was to be taken off if the rest of the mules would follow without the sound of its shallow music. No wind moved the weeds or shook the stiff grass, and the rising sun glittered pink on the patched and motley-shirted men as they blew on their red hands or beat them against their legs. Some were lucky enough to have woolen or fur gloves, but many had only the white cotton affairs furnished by the government. Sarah the squall laughed at them. The interpreter was warm as she rode in her bright green shawl. 
while the dismounted troopers stretched their limbs during the halt, she remained on her pony, talking to one and another. End of section five.